Hey, it's Brandon. Welcome to Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for the download today. If you're not subscribed, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for giving us a try today. Today's episode is brought to you by Zenium HR. The demands of HR and payroll are endless, and that's why Zenium provides a complete solution for both so you can focus on what you do best, which is growing your organization. Learn more about Zenium's complete HR plus payroll solution at zeniumhr.com. All right, today's guest is Scott Kaywood. He's the CEO of World at Work and the author of The New Work Exchange. And we have a great discussion around this major shift that's been happening in the workplace. And Scott's here to talk all about that. I know you're going to enjoy this episode. Scott shared a lot of great ideas about the workplace on this episode. So make sure to connect with Scott and also me on LinkedIn. Enjoy today's episode with Scott Kaywood. Hey, Scott, thanks for coming on the podcast. Appreciate you. Very happy to be here. Lots of fun things to talk about with this thing called work. So I'm glad uh, glad to be a part of the show today. Thanks. Yeah, work is complicated. And, and you wrote a book called The New Work Exchange, Embracing the Future by Putting Employees First. Let's start by what's the new work exchange that's emerging? What do you mean by that? Uh, great question. So uh, when you think about an exchange, it's what I do for you, what you do for me. And typically, we may have looked at that as the social contract between employers and employees managers and subordinates, whatever that, you know, the, those exchanges that need to take place for a person to do their best work. And, you know, as you think about work and the exchanges that you give, it's what you give and what you expect to get. Uh, there's just been a tremendous amount of change happening in the last decade. So Forbes gave me a call. I'm like, yes, I love talking about this. So we ended up putting it together in a book that came out a month or so ago. Yeah. So you, you said this has been happening for a decade. Was that escalated during the pandemic over the last few years? Did it like just completely shift drastically? You know, yes and no. It's a little bit of a mixed bag. But, you know, as we think about work as a construct, you know, and it's that question we all get asked every time we meet someone new. Hey, what do you do? There's a lot packed in there running around our our own ego, our ability to think that we contribute to something bigger, maybe better than ourselves. So work as a construct has been around, as we know it anyway, as humans, for around 12,000 years. Now, the vast majority of those 12,000 years was in the hunting and gathering phases. So you worked three hours a day, um, and then over time, certain things began to happen. For example, they decided to start hunting much bigger animals, and that required a coordination of work. You had to get organized because one person running around with one spear really couldn't take down a big, massive mammoth. But you could if you had five or six people. So we begin to see these tweaks about work over time. And, you know, we get fast forward work to, you know, in its history of those 12,000 years to around the 1800s, work had a big moment where we started making things ourselves. And we moved from farms to began to make things. And that transition alone set work in a very different direction. And part of why I wrote the new work exchange is because I still feel in many ways Work, as we think about it, for some, is still back in those 1800s, that mental model. And work has nothing to do with the work we did in the 1800s. So that's a little bit about how we got here. COVID did bring some things to um, fruition earlier. We're seeing some backtracking on it now, like remote work. 
but it did have an impact on making us look at work as a different construct. And we're still looking at it, I think, differently than we did before COVID. So it's, it's a good thing in many ways. Yeah, you talk about the old way of doing work. So the industrial revolution, I think you call it 3.0, and now we're into the 4.0. What are the factors that are driving the 3.0 to 4.0? I mean, there's something that's obviously shifting is, I don't know if it's what people want, if it's technology, if it's if all of these things, but yeah, what, what's driving it? You know, a, a good example of the, an old work exchange and a new work exchange was when during the phase of work, and I think about work as having somewhat of a scandalous past, right? It's got this interesting history about how work, you know, how we came to learn about it and do it. And right to this very moment, with all the strikes happening in the U.S., there's a lot of history about work and how we think about work. It's transposed to everybody through generations, through different experiences. And if you look at what's different now about the first three industrial revolutions, Remember the first industrial revolution, we really pulled people out of their farms. And so an old work exchange then was we had 12 year olds and 15 year olds working on the farm because everybody had to do something on the farm. Well, we then said, hey, we got factories now because with the invent of, of steam and, and water, we're able to make a thing. It was a mechanized industrial revolution. We began to make things. So we just plucked people off the farm and put them in these factories, including 12 and 15 year olds. That's a good example of a very much a tangible old work exchange and new work exchange. Now we know, looking back, that wasn't a great idea on many levels, but that's a good example of how a workforce that we had at the time on farms tried to be then just moved to the next thing, which was this factory model, didn't work very well whatsoever. But the second dust revolution, we were still in this production mode. We were making things. It became a mass production, but still very much around this notion of making things or production. Third industrial revolution, same thing. Now, technology made us move from mass production to automated, right? We saw a lot of movement in automation, but still production. So as we enter this fourth industrial revolution, it's no longer about production. It's all about consumption, right? Think about it. Everything you do, you're consuming information. You're consuming a new learning. You're consuming a new skill. You're looking at faster. Everybody that has bought Amazon Prime today is now wondering, well, can I get that today? Everything's speeding up. We're consuming more than ever. And work is now really being built around this notion of consumption, which is very, very different than building a work around this notion of production. In some ways, it's almost like a black and white example. And so that, to me, is why we have to be talking through some of the implications of a consumption model versus a production model, which most of work has been based on. Yeah, that the third industrial revolution, I think it was served a purpose at the time to get to economies of scale now a globalized environment, you know, economy where things are at mass scale. But I, I can see where now we're in this fourth industrial revolution where we're still cogging a wheel and we're always in growth mode because of this consumption factor. And that's not fun for, for employees. Like th there's no purpose in, in that kind of work, is there? It becomes in many ways an odd moment about work because you are expected. I mean, if, if, if managers are still holding you accountable to that third industrial revolution thinking, right? that production, that automation, it, it's a butts and seats kind mentality. You know, we have to rethink things like productivity. Are you really busy eight hours a day, even though you're paid for eight hours a day? No, none of us are busy every minute of the day for eight hours. And so looking at productivity, redefining it, redefining goals about what is the role of the employee in an organization also is different. Otherwise, I do think it does become this thing everybody hates and it, it's earned its reputation <laughs> of being not so great. Um, work can be pretty amazing and it can be amazing at any workplace on the planet if you focus on some of the elements that really matter to people. In your book, you said that there's a caring problem at work and it's not that people just stop caring. But what do you mean by that? 
You know, I think I oftentimes think that part of the challenge, you know, we use these big words in the space like engagement and we want retention and we want high productivity and commitment. These are very big human deliverables that don't just happen randomly. They're not magically imparted on an employer to an employee and everyone shows up just ready to go, giving you everything they need to give you. So part of it is you have to care about more than just what's in front of you. And for decades, I think we have focused on just the employee aspect of the relationship. But we forget sometimes there's a full human being that is in that employee position. And we have to think a bit broader about how we tap the full human. You know, and that could come across in terms of how I engage you, how I listen to you. Do I talk to you before I make changes that impact your life? You know, we're still human and we're now in a workplace. And so organizations that spend too much time on the employee only because you just that's my relationship with you are never going to tap the full potential. And when you do too much of the focus on the employee and not enough on the broader passion or purpose, people stop caring. Um, and we saw that a lot during COVID. You know, we had to redefine what, what an essential employee meant, right? It was people who were serving food. That was, that's a very different view of essential workers than we had prior to COVID. Um, but all those things sent messages about who were important, who is important, and who should be important moving forward. And it, all those things, I think, impact whether or not people really care about your brand, about your customers, about coworkers. And those are all prime things that we want a level of, of care for that's pretty high. You describe yourself as a work nerd. So that probably means you do a ton of research and look at data about the workplace. So let me into your thinking a little bit more in terms of the research and the data that you're uncovering and, and studying. What are you highlighting both from a maybe a positive trend and even negative trends like things are becoming obsolete and, and are shifting away? I'm just curious. I think they, there's quite a bit happening at work. If you, uh, you know, even if you look at just the fact that in the U.S. in 2023, we've already had over 230 strikes, right? So we're, and if you look at Gallup's numbers, the uh, you know 71% of the U.S. right now population believes that unions are a good thing. That's mm -hmm. way up from what we would have seen a while ago. So we're seeing this interesting juxtaposition of really how do employees get a voice that's meaningful in the workplace? And the numbers I think are a bit. I don't know, they're a bit disappointing to me because I know what work can be. I used to work on Fortune Magazine's 100 Best Places to Work list. And we interviewed hundreds of companies every year and we got to see behind the scenes, how do they create workplaces that are, have a bit more meaning or a bit have a bit more, we would call them a great place to work versus a good place to work versus a lousy place to work, right? That's an interesting continuum to look at. So I, I do think you will see the data that says, eh, it works okay. It's not horrible in the U.S. It's not also magical or pretty amazing either. We're kind of in this middle zone, which I think is unfortunate because we are paying a lot more for labor right now, given the last two years. I, I can see that trend continuing as we try to balance some of the inflation issues. But I think the comp alone is one aspect. But are we willing to embrace that full person that comes into the office or into their home? I, I work from home now full time. Because it's one thing to say, hey, bring your full self to work, Brandon, and you know, and fly your free flag, whatever that is. It was a very different process, though, if I really enable that to happen. You know, it's one of the jokes we use around being a good place to work and a great place to work. Good places to work have nice benefits, but great places to work actually let you use them. Right? You can take the PTO and not be bothered. You can actually disengage for a bit and rejuvenate. So there's a lot of data, I think, floating out there. I would encourage organizations to be very sure they understand what's happening internally and how can they impact that employee experience and maybe in a fresh way or a different way. Because if they're still using comp programs, total reward programs, hiring processes, 
performance reviews. I mean, we can fight about performance reviews all day long. Uh, we know there's, for example, a migration toward less organizations using them, but also a lot less using any numbers, one through five. I'm a five, I'm a four, I'm a three. You know, we've seen the numeric things go away. And that's a good thing in many ways, because it gives you a bit more room to talk about what might be important to that relationship and that individual. So I don't know if I've answered it you know, directly enough your question, but there's, um, it could be better too, I guess, is my final comment. Work could be better for a lot of people. Yep. You put a quote from James Baldwin in your book, and I want you to unpack it for me and just talk about the significance and how you're seeing this play out in the new work exchange. So the quote says, not everything that is faced can be changed but nothing can be changed until it's faced, end quote. What, what do you mean by that? You know, I, um, I'm a big fan of being pretty direct. You know, so if I have to tell you some hard news, I just put it out there, right? It's never really the news about what happens. It's are you willing to say it, you know, and do it. And that gets to the areas, Brendan, of transparency. And do people really understand your organization in a way that sets them up for success? Do they understand the promotions process? in a way that I can adapt my behaviors to achieve what I want to achieve, whether it's my compensation, my rewards, my recognition, my promotions, whatever that is that you want, the experiences, the learning, the development. There's, you know, there's oftentimes a lot of these processes are really hard to navigate. There's a lot of unwritten rules that exist in workplaces. You know, I had a CEO one time that was fanatical about somebody wearing white socks. He hated white socks. He had this pathological obsession with white socks. And if you somehow, somebody came in in white socks, we knew it's going to be a really rough day. So we had to put it in a policy manual, right? No white socks. And I'm like, gosh, that really goes against everything I believe about workplaces. Because really, that's an issue that that manager had because he had power, right? He was a CEO with power versus maybe someone else who might have liked white socks. It's a, it's a fun example that may have not impacted performance. But you can see this notion of, are, are you seeing what's really happening? Which is why I put that quote in there. I'll give you a quick example. I, I visited a manufacturing facility. They make makeup. You'll see, you know, I used to work at Revlon. This is not a, a Revlon story, but another company. And um, I was greeted by big security guards who went through my backpack. I saw them go through employees' backpacks and purses looking around. As employees left the manufacturing facility, same thing. Per, purses, backpacks, everything. I get into the manufacturing facility, big, big poster on the wall, the five core values of this organization. The number one value, trust. Trust. Here we go. So, you know, it's okay to have trust as a value. It's great. It's okay to also search people if you want to. But when you put them together, it becomes an inconsistent message that really robs you of other promises that you may make that no one else is going to believe either. Because every time I come in or out of here, I'm searched, but you're saying trust and integrity, I think, was the second one. So part of that quote is to really figure out, let's be okay with what's really happening and deal with it versus a value on the wall that we know really isn't how we do things around here anyway. And we're just trying to placate or get through it because it's on the wall and we don't know what to do with it. We have to know what to do with these things. Change the value to anti-theft if you want in the manufacturing. Right. That's okay. Uh, be real with people. And that's really where that quote comes from. Yeah, it becomes lip service at that point. And if it's not the values of the words or the things that leaders are saying aren't backed by behaviors, and that's like stretched across the organization with what we expect, then it's it it really is lip service. They conflict. Yeah, and it, it, you know, it destroys trust. Trust is a very fragile commodity in workplaces, and it can be blown pretty quickly. Uh, and you, I think you're seeing that a lot in what's happening with even look at the, the three big automakers in the U.S. with compensation, right? You, 
you know, if you've seen the interviews lately, they tried to explain why they were paid the way they were. And I think it was probably a difficult conversation. And I don't think it went the way they would have wanted it to. When you took over at World at Work, you had talked about focusing on two things that most CEOs like that keeps them up at night and they probably avoid it at all costs. What were those things that you focused on when you took over? It's really around the um, the notion of growth. How do we get an organization? In that case, it was around 80, I think 80 years old at the time. You know, we really act like a startup. I follow business cycles quite fluently in terms of where organizations are because it impacts what they can do, how much cash they have, and how risk-averse or risk-supportive they are. So for me, World of Work is really about um, turning it into a growth, really a better value creation for everyone else. And the second one was its people. How do we take an organization that had its history and maybe change the trajectory without kind of alienating the employee base? And so it's really around this culture and growth and how do you kind of blend them together differently to get to a different outcome? Not very easy, right? Because you you don't want to be a CEO that comes in and starts changing everything because it's hard. You already have low trust, if any trust, because you're like, who is this guy? In this case, me. So I really wanted to focus on this notion of Taking the current culture, moving it to a different spot, taking the current abilities, capabilities around growth and moving it to a different spot. Mm-hmm. By focusing on people, I'm, I'm sure you've run across the fact that a lot of people don't necessarily just want a, a job. They want a career and to contribute to something that's more meaningful. So what shifts can organizations make to really match what people want? They want a career. They want work to fit in with their life because they're a person outside of work too. So like what, what are, I know that's a lot to unpack, but maybe what are some things that organizations can do to make that shift? I, I would definitely look at the, making sure that you're aware of what that employer role is doing, but also does that align really well with what that human or that person is also after where, you know, it's, it's not just CEOs that want to leave a legacy. I mean, I may be letting the cat out of the bag here, but every employee wants to leave a legacy. Nobody on this planet starts out wanting to be mediocre at work. No one, right? We start out wanting to do great stuff. So you have to define what that might look like for this person and that person. It is, it is an individualized approach. I mean, I, I know that you've talked quite a bit about this year of the individual, and, and I think that's spot on. That's exactly what it has to feel like. So you've got to take the time. It's, you know, we're not in a mass production environment anymore, right? So a consumption environment means it is more personalized. Even things like total rewards and compensation, which we have designed for years on the mass scales, can also be changed. You know, we're seeing lots of shifts in compensation, moving from bi-weekly pay to daily pay, moving from you know checks to you can go get your cash out with an ATM card every day if you wanted to. So there's lots of things that are happening to try and meet that individual. Um, I just find that it's a little bit unbalanced with the amount of focus put on work and the workplace and the employee versus that full person sitting there and trying to do both great stuff for the individual and great stuff for the employee. It doesn't have to be a juxtaposition. Right? It's, it can be much more blended than we have made it today. So I would start there. Let's just see where there's alignment. I mean, let's face it. Some of our jobs are boring. Some of the jobs are routine. That's not going to change you know, dramatically. So it's the outcome, though. You know, a great example, I visited S.T. Johnson. They make Windex. Uh, and they were showing on the pool. It's a very nice manufacturing facility. It's it's quite gorgeous what I would think of manufacturing. They've got pictures all over the wall of cool people using Windex to do all sorts of extraordinary things. Pilot cleaning a window of an airplane with Windex, right? And so you begin to say, my job really isn't making this chemical thing and put it into a bottle and make people a lot of money. It's really to help a pilot 
clean her windshield as she's flying this plane. I mean, that's a really cool, cool utilization. Sometimes we've got to make that connection for people, but take the time to make the connection, right? Otherwise, is the job really that important anyway? I think you, it, it, there's a lot in there that I would just, if anybody did that, I think it would be a cool step in the right direction. You said that there's a currency shift happening and it's detectable in the questions that candidates are asking when you maybe say, oh, do you have any questions for me about um, our workplace or our culture? So you're hearing these questions in the interview process. What types of expectations are you learning about from from people who are really considering an employer nowadays? Yeah, I would um, I, I would encourage anybody listening to this to ask their recruiting team to begin documenting yes, if they don't already I questions. I think you'll be surprised that what they're asking. There are questions about the credibility of the leadership team, right? So as we see more and more CEOs say potentially unflattering things about workers or compensation, or you know, if you look at the Australian CEO recently talked about, let's put the economy into a recession so it'll reduce the power of the employees. Those are all things that you know add up in the employee's mind. So they're coming in wanting to know, am I making a good choice here by trusting the current leadership? Are your policies really transparent? What are the unwritten rules that I'm seeing? Did this company take a social stand during Black Lives Matter? Or did you remain silent? Did you do anything like removing Bud Light from the, you know, the bar that you used to have? These are pretty specific questions and you're getting the issues that people believe are important that they're no longer willing to let companies not talk about or not deal with, like Black Lives Matter. So the level of transparency on the questions have been incredibly different, I would say. You're asking about, do I get to know what my team number, you know, members, their ranges of salary, do you post that? And there's obviously legislation happening in different states, but these are questions coming from candidates. So we'll see if the power shifts back a little bit to the employer with the current you know, uh, talent levels and talent wars. But the, the questions I think are still important to understand and be able to respond to, because I don't think anybody wants to go back to complete business as usual that we had before COVID. I mean, anyone, you know, that's a, a new college graduate or somebody who's, who's quite tenured, there were things we didn't like about COVID that we did some changing and, and modifying. And I'm hoping that it doesn't all go back to the way it was because I don't think anybody's benefiting from business as usual as we had at pre-COVID. Yeah. You talked earlier about people first was like one of the first things at World of Work that you focused on. And if you can think of a few things that would really improve the employee experience to, to so people knew that it was people first centric, what are those things that would make the biggest impact right now? So, you know, the, uh, the simple question of whether or not your leadership team and potentially your board, depending on your organization, you know, where they view the employee in, in, in terms of the critical stakeholders. If you look at most of us, we're saying things like, you know, customers first, the customer's always right, the customer. And we focus a lot on shareholder value and profitability. And what oftentimes is mentioned, oh yeah, and, and we really care about our people, or they're, you know, sometimes we'll hear phrases like they're the most important asset. So, you know, part of what's happening in the new work exchange is that employees as a construct need to be elevated to a different level as a stakeholder. So decision-making, right? Is it all coming from one CEO in one part of the world who's kind of cascading down all the demands that they want? Or is it a shared experience where we figure out not by your title, but by who knows the most about this particular issue, let them make the decision, even though they're not a VP, even though they're not, even though they're a new hire, even though they might be younger, 
right? Do we spread out and really put the best person forward for the job, regardless of some of these hierarchies and things like location or proximity to you know, the headquarters? These are all old constructs that were necessary during the production time, not necessary during the consumption times. So involving people in the business in a very different and more meaningful way, I think, is a key to do. And that's a big ask because you are shifting some of the focus. Maybe it's how you pay, when you pay, your total awards package, right? That could be different. And it's not to say that the board or the executive team aren't important. They're an equally important stakeholder. But you're going to have to level out the imbalances where the employees are an afterthought and they're not a really critical stakeholder because they are the future of your business. And so that's really part of what we're looking at. Take your stakeholder groups, there's probably five or six of them, and see if if that experience is somewhat equitable or maybe can you make it more equitable? And and let's see what happens in your organization. My sense is that there's an imbalance there that may be costing you more than you think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, speaking of stakeholders, so you you wrote this story about a candidate and I, I can't remember if it was a candidate that you were possibly interviewing or if it was a story, but you wrote about this candidate who exclaimed at the very end of the interview, I'm all in. And that's a really interesting reaction. So unpack that scenario for me and how, you know, somebody who a hiring manager or a leadership group that might be interviewing talent to come into the organization, how do you bring somebody along so that they say something like that? I'm all in. And they've never worked inside the organization. They're just going off of your word. But how do you back that up so you can get people coming along and becoming a stakeholder? You know, it's um, it's this interesting dichotomy of even if you just look man, at the interview process for a moment or in the old work exchange, perhaps versus the new work exchange. You know, maybe it was our, our mental model is I'm going to interview you and I'm going to see if you're the right fit. Maybe, you know, we hire for culture fit. We've heard that language before, which was never a great idea, by the way. We should always add for cultural ad, like where's the organization going and find people who can get me there. I don't, I don't want, I don't necessarily need more of the same in any role, right? We don't really need that. So I, I think what you're trying to do there is shift that dynamic to where it does become a true conversation about the exchange. What's in it for me? What's in it for you? We, in this case, me could be the organization. And you're trying to find those overlaps that really are meaningful whether that's giving back to the community, maybe you have a a day off, an extra day off so you can go volunteer at the Dog Society because you love rescuing dogs. There's connection points that become really meaningful. And if you send the message that, you know, we're testing you right now to see if you're good enough, I think it's a failed interview automatically because you're never going to get the real stuff out. And let's face it, an interview, we all say things anyway that we may or may not mean. But when that genuine connection happens, when it's fairly authentic and you hit on something, could just be one thing. It could be a combination or a love of 80s music. I don't know. It doesn't really need to be anything that specific. It's just a thing where you connect. People begin to buy into what the, the message are that you're really asking about, what you stand for, the things that you can achieve here, why it's a cool idea to join us. Those should also be part of the interview process. And oftentimes, I think people take a reserved approach and you know they're very much, hey, prove that you're good enough. I don't think that serves anybody, including that candidate in the long run. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's wrap up with this. Um, I think the world's changing pretty fast. And I think the I think technology is a big thing, uh, AI automation. Um, I also think the needs of people are changing drastically. Just maybe that was pandemic related. Maybe it was always underlying. But as organizations, as leaders, as employees inside of an organization, we've all got to adapt because if we want to gain momentum in our organization and grow, we've got to make some changes and adapt with the changing world. So how do we go about that? How do we adapt to this really fast changing environment? 
This is a great question on many levels, and I would encourage people to go ahead and use their gut feeling, right? As humans, we have these innate reactions to things that we don't like, whether it's the tone that someone uses or it's the decision that someone's making or it's the policy that we all know is a bad policy, but we do it anyway because we've got a crazy CEO and he hates White Sox, right? You've got these things that we know inherently aren't working. Work as a construct wasn't working all that well before COVID. So one, one thing to do is to think about what are all the, those points where I tend to see that are, that are rough for our employee experience? And have you designed an employee experience to do what you really need it to do? Do you need it to have more engagement? Do you need it to have more excitement, have a bit more fun at work? Do you need to reduce some of the policies so that people can make their own choices about what they want to wear you know, to work. I, I think looking at some of these things that we take for granted um, that really do impact employees. I mean, I'll tell you right now, it's a bad time to have a bad boss, right? It's an expensive moment in time because people don't want business as usual. They want to bring their full self to work. They want to have a job that has some degree of security and care and shows that they've got a purpose to do something. So a bad boss right now, I would say it's way more expensive than it would have been before COVID. Think through some of these elements of the ideal employee experience, whatever that means for you, would be a great next step for anybody here. And my last comment around time, the average human being right now has an attention span of eight seconds. Eight seconds. Right? It used to be 11 before COVID. We're now down to eight seconds. You've got eight seconds to, to tell your story. You've got eight seconds to convince you to stay connected to this, you know, to, even to this podcast. So you've got eight seconds to explain a bit about what you want done in the workplace. So I would say make those eight seconds count repeatedly and, and reinforce it every chance that you get. Scott, your book is The New Work Exchange, Embracing the Future by Putting Employees First. It's out. It's been out for a month or so, right? So people go get it. Where else can people connect with you? Uh, where do you want to point people to? Yeah, uh, um, keep in mind, every cent of the book is donated to the World of Work Foundation, so which gives scholarships to people. So grab it on Amazon. You're also giving back to people who need to learn more skills. So every cent goes to uh, to our foundation. So please pick up a copy of the book through Amazon and uh, I hope you enjoy the read. My guest today has been Scott K. Wood. Scott, thanks for being part of the show. I look forward to next time. Take care. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the guest's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of Zenium HR or the host, Brandon Laws. The material and information presented on Transform Your Workplace is for general information and educational purposes only. Zenium HR or the host, Brandon Laws, does not necessarily endorse any guest, their business, or any organization they represent. Discretion is advised. Please work with a trusted advisor to find a custom approach that fits your organization's needs.